The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Hi there. Uh, I'm Andrew Potter. Uh, I'm a, an author and a journalist. I'm a public policy professor at McGill University at the Max Bell School of Public Policy. Uh, I have a book out called On Decline, which is uh, about why each year seems to be worse than the next. And I'm ready to start digging deep. I'm Mark Sutcliffe, and I'm on a quest to learn from the best. Welcome to Digging Deep, presented by Zen Books and Abacus Data. This is the latest in our series of one-on-one conversations with really interesting, thought-provoking, thoughtful, accomplished people in many different fields. On this episode, are we in decline? And is that really a bad thing? With author and philosopher Andrew Potter. So for a long time, I've had this idea, this theory, that there's never been a better time to be alive and that life keeps getting better every year. Of course, there are still lots of problems in the world. But I think you could argue we have better health care, more human rights, better food, longer life expectancy, and so much more. We live better and longer than the very, very richest, the ultra-wealthy among our ancestors. But Andrew Potter doesn't necessarily agree with that. Andrew's latest book is called On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever. So Andrew has written other books before, including The Authenticity Hoax and The Rebel Cell, which he co-authored with Joseph Heath. He's the former editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen. In fact, we used to work together at the Citizen when I was a columnist there. And he's now associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University in Montreal. So this episode is going to feature a little bit of a debate between us over whether civilization is rising or in decline. But here's the thing. Despite the gloomy thesis of his book, despite the position Andrew is taking on this issue, he isn't necessarily a total pessimist about the future. We're also going to get into whether we should even be searching for meaning in life or whether we're just advanced forms of animals, apes that are trying to find meaning and struggling with that question. Andrew is also going to share with us some insight into the choices he's made in his own life, including how he would have approached money and children very differently if he'd known more about them in his 20s. We also talk about the importance of keeping your commitments, how great it feels to get out on a canoe and escape from the modern world, how hard it is to come back once that canoe trip is over, and why taking life a little more seriously, a little younger, is actually a good thing. And if you want to know how to kill a fly or what's going to happen to Elon Musk, Andrew has answers for those questions as well. One last thing before we get started. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe to Digging Deep if you're not already doing so and post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share this podcast with a few other people. If you're looking for more information on this episode, on the podcast in general, you can go to letsdigdeep.com. So let's start digging deep 
with the author of On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever, Andrew Potter. All right, Andrew, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to Digging Deep. I'm very excited to talk about your latest book and so much more. You and I have uh, worked together and known each other for a long time, but we've never had this kind of conversation before, so I'm really looking forward to it. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. It's good to be here. So let's start uh, with our rapid fire questions. And what is your fondest childhood memory? My fondest childhood memory is... uh... Uh, I was six years old and uh, my dad took me on my very first overnight canoe uh, camping trip and uh, we didn't catch anything. Uh, and But I have this distinct memory of six years old of canoeing along Palmerston Lake uh, in the outskirts of, of, of Ontario. Uh, and it was the clearest lake I'd ever seen. I remember seeing dozens of fish down there. I think we we're going to catch so many fish. We never caught any, but it was, uh, it was an absolutely, uh, I think we went for maybe 36 hours and it was uh, absolutely fantastic. I have, I have more memories of that trip, age six, than just about anything else of, of my childhood. Wow. That's pretty special. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Who was your hero when you were 10 years old? When I, ten, when I was 10 years old, uh, my hero was uh, probably, uh, oddly enough, uh, my, uh, my gym teacher. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting. He was like this sort of, um, not really a father figure, but a, uh, a, um, a domineering sort of figure who, uh, you know, I, I kind of feared and respected. Mm, cool. And what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Uh, when I was five, I told, uh, I remember, t- I remember distinctly telling a family friend that I was going to be an atomic scientist, <laughs> uh, which, because I had one of these like little, little sort of learn kitty science books that, uh, I thought, um, uh, and it had like little models of the atom and rockets and all that kind of stuff. That was one of those like 1970s, uh, space age, uh, things. I wanted to be an atomic scientist. Uh, and, uh, then uh, after that, I don't recall having any real career goals uh, until I stumbled into journalism uh, at age 37 and realized this is what I really want to do with my life. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty late, but that's okay. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty late. Yeah. Stumbling is okay in the, in the career world if you're doing interesting things. Yeah. What's your life story in six words? In six words. Uh, it is... Uh, um, I didn't plan any of this. <laughs> I like it. Um, what's a what's a big mistake you've made somewhere along the way, and what did you learn from it? Oh, good. Uh, big mistake. I, I made a lot of big mistakes. Um, one huge mistake I made was, uh, frankly, not taking uh, finances seriously. Um, that is, um, and I mean that in in, in the broad broadest understanding of like not just sort of making money right but but sort of not taking seriously the idea that I'm going to get older and uh, reality is going to hit at a certain point Um, I sort of grew up with this idea that you know if you follow your bliss the world will just sort of arrange itself uh, in ways that will work out okay right Um, it was almost like I'd, I'd internalized every everything anyone had ever said at a convocation address, right? <laughs> about, you know, follow your dreams, right? And the world will unfold, right? Yeah. And, and if I ever give an, if I ever give a convocation address, it'll be the exact opposite. I'll be like, you know, put your dreams in a box and 
you know, to do something. And so get super it was just, practical. Yeah. It's super practical. It was just, um, I, I could have done, I could have done with a lot more practical mindedness about, uh, about my life, um, about what I was doing, uh, when I was doing it, why I was doing it and, uh, what the, uh, how I was going to pay for it are sort of the, hmm. uh, with, without making it sound like I should have made more money. It, it, it should have been a, a practicality. I think was probably a better way of saying that I, I wish I'd spent a little more time on that. I mean, look, yeah. I, have a degree in, I have a degree in philosophy. So, uh, that tells you a lot about, um, my, uh, my focus on practicality. Yeah. Um, and we do have a question about commencement address messaging. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But uh, for what do you feel most grateful? Um, geez. Um, my family, uh, obviously broadly uh, understood. Um, but um, right now for, um, uh, frankly, my wife, Liz. Uh, you know, uh, she's uh, helped me keep my life on track um, in ways that um, uh, I think uh, I could not have done on my own. And uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have sort of um, found her. Oh, that's very sweet. What has been the best year of your life so far and why? Uh, you know, uh, um, I thought the last year was pretty good. Um, and uh, people are going to be like, what? Uh, I, I'm well, one especially of those... with, with this goes against the theme of your book, which will yeah, it goes against to... the theme of my book. You know, <laughs> my life. Um, the um, the pandemic, uh, as you know, and and like I don't want to downplay the pandemic and and the the, the tragedies and the the, the damage everyone's ever played, but um, the, the, we were lucky enough that the pandemic didn't affect us financially, um, and uh, it didn't affect us professionally. And it allowed um, us to spend a lot of time with our kids. Uh, my kids are, are eight and five now. They were, you know, a year and a half younger when the pandemic started. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I know a lot of families were drowning and a lot of families were barely, barely uh, treading water. Uh, we, uh, I, had a, I had a pretty, pretty nice pandemic in a lot of ways. And uh, there's a lot about it I'm going to miss, I hate to say. Uh, in the sense that it, it also helped exacerbate my sort of um, natural uh, introversion. And uh, so I got to spend a lot of time with my favorite people. Yeah. And, and learned about, learned, I learned a lot about myself, my own capacities, and also my own, uh, my own, my own uh, failings along the way, you know, um, just dealing with the pandemic and the various things associated with it. So it was a huge learning experience uh, in a million different ways. I wouldn't want to repeat it, but I don't regret it at all. Yeah, there's, there's a lot I'm going to miss about, about the, not about the pandemic, but about the way we lived during the pandemic. Yeah. Not not getting in a car and driving everywhere, uh, you know, just not having to choose: am I going to this event tonight or staying home? Uh, you know, a lot of stuff like that that I'm just not going to miss. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but if you want, I mean, if you want a a, a more uh, traditional answer to the question, the best year of my life would probably be age twelve. I think uh, the twelfth year of my life was probably the best one. What happened then? You know, uh, it was the last time I was living in the um, uh, that that transparent unreflectiveness of uh, adolescence and boyhood, um, when uh, my friends were all that really mattered, uh, and they were frankly all guys. And uh, my memories of, of being age twelve were just simply playing soccer or football or soccer baseball or what have you with my friends in a park uh, yeah. whenever I wanted to till late. And uh, after that, um, school became an issue, girls became an issue, jobs became an issue, you know, everything sort of the world started to impinge. But age 12 was the last time I remember being in that, um, that, that bubble of, of boyhood that was just, uh, 
which is magical. Yeah. That's really interesting because I, I heard this podcast recently where uh, they were talking to an anthropologist about how before farming, uh, nobody was able to focus on anything except the, the day they were living, right? Like there was no, right. you didn't need to worry about time or calendars or anything like that. You were just getting right. through that day. Um, and, and when farming happened, then everything changed. And right. in our lives, there is a period of time where all you worry about is, hey, what am I going to do today? And that's, right. and that's so joyful and immediate and, and simple. And then you enter into a phase which never ends, I guess, which is you're always thinking about planning yeah. and saving and setting things aside and stressing about where, where this is leading and you know, preparing and all of that kind of stuff instead of just living in the moment, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think, um, you know, I used, I used to sneer at and sort of poo-poo this whole idea that modernity is a disaster and, uh, you know, that when we left the, the forest or whatever, it was a bad idea. But, but when you think deep down about um, when, you, when, when, when people talk about when their lives felt most, most meaningful, when they felt the most sort of present, when they felt uh, most unreflective, right? It's like, for me, it's things like, like canoe trips, right? Yeah. Why, why, canoe trips are basically pretending, you know, you live in a pre-agrarian society, right? You wake up every day and you got three things to do, right? You got to get somewhere you got to make camp, you got to feed yourself, right? That's it. And uh, it always takes two or three days for me on a good canoe trip to get out of, you know, uh, society mode. And I always hate the first two or three days. I was camping the summer with my dad and, and, I, and I, the first two or three days, you're like, oh God, what's going on? And then, and then you just think, why would I ever do anything other than this, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then it's over because you got to yeah. get back to work, right? Yeah. Um, but there's always, that, there's always that transition period where you go from, from not being uh, able to focus on the trip to, to wondering how you could ever do anything else other than just paddle a canoe. Yeah, so true. What one person has had the greatest impact on your life? Um... I would have to say it's Joe Heath, um, professor of philosophy at uh, the University of Toronto. Um, I've been very lucky in my life, and we were going to talk about this, uh, in that I have had a succession of very, very um, valuable mentors slash friends um, who uh, helped my career, helped me personally, uh, and so on. And I could probably name four, um, but Joe... Uh, who I met. Joe's only three years older than I am, but I was 25 when I met him. He was 28 and he was already a, a tenure track professor of philosophy. And I was struggling to even consider what my PhD thesis might be on. And uh, he became a, a prof and then he became a friend and then we became co-authors. And since then, you know, he's coming into my life as, as you do when you get older, right? He lives in New York City now, but um, nobody's had a bigger influence on my life than Joe. Wow. And you did write a book together, as you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's the most important lesson that you've learned that you would share with other people? Uh, I would say it's it's not a lesson that I've learned uh, in the sense that um, it's uh, in the sense that I'm 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 good at it. Um, but I think uh, the thing that I wish I were better at, and that I would tell my past self to focus on, is uh, try to be more reliable. Uh, in everything you do. I think um, and this is something that's been exacerbated by cell phones in my own life, but that I, that it was a, it was a natural tendency of my own is to uh, um, bail on commitments, um, retreat from, from endeavors, uh, you know, and generally just take a, a more tentative and, and non-committal approach uh, to, uh, to the world and to, to relationships and to, to work and so on. And I think uh, if I could go back and, and, 
you know, shake my younger self and not not much younger, right? Um, uh, it would be, um, you know, keep your promises and uh, do what you say you're going to do. I think, mm. I think, I think, I think we live in a very non-committal world that cell phones have, have made, uh, you know, that, that sort of, you know, I'll text you when I'm there, I'll text you right. if I'm going to come out, I'll, I'll, you know, it's, it's really made us into a, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that, this, that, that Putnam distinction between uh, deep ties and, and, and narrow and, and shallow ties, right? I think it's made us into a much more shallow tie society. And it's something that I have always had a problem with. And um, it's, uh, it's something I regret. It's really interesting that you bring cell phones into that because I never, th- I, I kind of thought about it from the other angle, which is I realized recently that before cell phones, you know, when you met somebody for lunch or whatever, you there was no way to tell them you were running late. There was no way to cancel at the last minute. So you showed up, right? <laughs> yeah, you showed up on time, you know, because <laughs> like, yeah. you were stuck with that. You know, you, you made it, you talked to somebody like the week before and said, Hey, next Wednesday at noon, I'll meet you at that restaurant. And, and, and then the next time you're going to talk to them was at the restaurant. Right. So you just showed up. You just showed up. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's not a new problem for society and for a lot of people, for me in particular, there, there's a, there's a Graham Greene novel, The Comedians. It's not one of his best known books, but um, it, it, the, the, the underlying theme of this is between uh, the people he calls the committed and the non-committed, right? Um, and it's, uh, and the non-committed people he call the comedians, the ones, the ones who basically see life as essentially light and comical versus those who see life as fundamentally uh, deep and serious. And uh, I have to say, I, I sort of grew up uh, on the side of the, dispositionally on the side of the comedians. Right. Um, and I think that's, I used to think that's the, that's the right disposition. I don't believe that anymore. I think, uh, mm. and, and Graham Greene, of course, is coming up from a very religious point of view, right? That, that life is yeah. fundamentally serious. Um, and while I'm not a religious person uh, by any stretch, I, uh, the, 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 it's probably just getting older, right? The seriousness of life is something that I wish um, I had taken more, more seriously, frankly, as, as, a, as a younger man. What's your secret talent? Uh, my secret talent? Uh, <laughs> you know, I can kill any fly. Really? I can kill I any did- fly. Like with, with lightning quick hand movements and yeah, um, there, there's a secret that I that I learned actually watching a, a I can't remember where I learned it from, uh, but um, yeah, I, I can. Uh, the, the trick is to uh, it's like Wayne Gretzky, you know Wayne Gretzky famous. I was just going to say that. Gonna, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, you go where the fly is going to be. Yeah, and and uh, and uh, and so people try and hit flies from top. You got to hit them from above, right? You come you come about six inches above the fly sitting there, bang, they're going to fly. They'll jump up into your hands. <laughs> but it really is. It's like, it's like, I should have been in like the karate kid or something, you know, he yeah. so you catch it. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Um, what is your boldest prediction for the future? Well, <laughs> um, given uh, my boldest prediction of the future, I, uh, I think things are going to get uh, worse uh, in a lot of ways um, for for the next uh, little while. Um, in in a lot of ways, um, my my boldest prediction. Um, I've struggled with this one. What, what uh, you want, like a particular one, like a uh, whatever, you, whatever comes to mind. Um, I think I think Elon Musk is going to go to Mars. I think, okay. I think I think that's actually something he's going to do. I think Elon Musk is one of these days going to stick himself in a rocket and uh, and sail my way to Mars, and I don't think he's going to come back. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I think Elon Musk is going to become the first human to die on Mars. 
That's really interesting. That's bold, but, but also, you know, foreseeable in a way, like I, I, I can imagine that. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking like, it sounds crazy that we're going to have people going to Mars and they're, they're going to go there without the expectation of returning to earth. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to, to watch earth disappear in the rearview mirror and know you'd never see it again. But that's not so different from, from, people who got on boats from Europe and traveled to North America 400 years ago, right? So, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the most interesting, uh, you've probably read them, the, 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 um, the Patrick O'Brien books of uh, Aubrey and Maturin, Master and Commander. Have you read all those? No, books? I haven't. No. Um, they made a movie of it about 20 years ago, right? With uh, Russell Crowe, Master and Commander, yeah. the big seafaring thing. And Patrick O'Brien was an Irish uh, Catalan novelist who wrote like the 20 books that sort of, it's like an extended Roman flow, right? It's like one long story, but these two characters, right? Aubrey and his, and his surgeon, Maturin. Um, and uh, it, it's one of the things where when you read it, it's like science fiction, right? Because if you understand science fiction as essentially changing the dials on society or let's slow down the rate of transmission of information let's slow down the rate or let's speed up uh, the rate at which uh you know travel happens let's you know do all these things right they're essentially just you're just turning everything down it's like an amp where instead of turning up to 11 in sci-fi you're turning everything down to like two right and uh it just creates a world and uh you realize of course these books that these guys go years without seeing their families they go they go without not without seeing them without talking to them yeah yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I thought about this the other day when I was coming back, my dad and I went canoeing in uh, Lavrandre Park in, uh, in early August. And I come back after five days and coming out, get that little panic, right? Because I'm going to check my cell phone and I don't know what's happened, right? Are my kids yeah. okay? Is everything is all falling, right? Uh, can you imagine two years of that, right? Like, <laughs> like literally like horse riding up to your cottage and to see, you know, you left your wife and kids. You have no idea what is happening, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like uh, you've been just, in a coma, right? Like you've been in a coma, and, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, and so at least you know, um, and people will start doing this. You're gonna, I, I, I do think we're gonna see like you know somebody's gonna just up and say I'm, and it's gonna be one of these private guys. NASA's not sending anybody to Mars, right? It's gonna be, it's gonna be yeah. Bezos or it's gonna be Elon or someone like that, and he's just gonna say I'm, <laughs> see you guys, <laughs> thanks, thanks for the yeah. For the and and the other thing, not to go, uh, you know, we're here, we might as well keep keep going with this because it's yeah. really interesting. But I can totally foresee uh, whatever. A settlement occurs on Mars, beginning as effectively a colony of Earth, uh, but then eventually demanding its independence and having its own way of doing things, and 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 uh, a you know a, a society evolving there that has its own distinct character and and uh, and desires and needs, you know, similar to say the United States versus the British empire, right? Like right. It, it'll, it's going to become its own thing and it will demand its freedom from earth at a certain yeah. point. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think you can see that happen even sooner and closer. Um, one of the, uh, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to downplay it a bit in, in the, in the on decline book, but you know, a, a huge amount of, um, I think on this has been shaped for better or for worse by, you know, reading a heck of a lot of, um, cyberpunk science fiction, uh, William Gibson, most obviously, but, um, I don't know if you've ever read Neil Stevenson, um, no, is uh, is an American writer wrote wrote um, wrote a book called Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash, and so on. And and he wrote a book a few years ago called Seven Eves, which the opening line is uh, the moon exploded for no apparent reason. 
right? And it just sort of goes from there, right? The moon explodes and it turns out the moon explodes. Yeah, it's a great opening line, right? And after the moon explodes, the earth is going to get destroyed because the moon's going to shatter in a million fragments that are billion fragments. They're going to, sh- you know, shower down on the earth and set it on fire. And so they end up having to escape into space. And uh, there's this sort of like, um, it's, it's kind of, there's a kind of a fall of Saigon kind of thing where the humans are frantically trying to get off planet as many as they can into, uh, into orbit, into these little um, arcs and, and the ISS and all this. And uh, one of the more interesting aspects of the book is, is how he narrates how quickly pl- politics takes over uh, the space colony, um, partly between Earth and the space colony, and then once Earth is done within the space colony itself. And, uh, and one of the things he he uh, emphasized, and this came out in 2015, which is sort of before all this happened, but the, the, the characters end up having a, um, a proto-Facebook through which they, they communicate in, in space. And Facebook becomes the, the chief mechanism through which uh, political schism happens, right? That right. Uh, disinformation, wow. yeah. conspiracy theories, and, uh, and fragmentation. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the sort of schisms end up heading off to Mars. They're like, you know, we're going to Mars. You guys can sit here in rotten orbit. We're going to Mars, right? And it, it was, it, it's a remarkably prescient take because he wrote it 2013, 14, 15, right? Before... I think we'd really sort of understand just the power of something like Facebook to, to do that, especially the misinformation side of it. And the, the, um, the kicker to the whole book is the reconstituted um, Earth society in that they reconstitute 5,000 years later um, uh, bans uh, Wi-Fi. Bans Wi-Fi, okay. Bans Wi-Fi. Yeah. They end up becoming a highly technical society, a very mechanical society, but they ban Wi-Fi. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is this is this is a fascinating little tangent. I wasn't expecting to talk about colonizing Mars today, but this has been really good. Uh, so, just a couple more of our our questions. Um, let's come back to the, the the theme of a commencement address. What would be your message? You know, I, I I've I've uh, I've always uh, um, thought about this because I really don't like. Um, the, the follow your bliss, uh, you know, follow your dreams messaging. I mean, you don't want to come out and pour water on people, right? Um, uh, I think, I hate to say this because I'm, 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 I'm not an old man, but I'm not a young man anymore. I'm 51. Uh, and I think the theme would be, look, uh, it goes by faster than you think. And uh, it may seem at age 19, 20, 21, 23 that you've got a lot of time. Uh, you don't, right? And uh, I think I used to think you couldn't screw up your life before you were thirty, right? No matter what you did before you were thirty, there's plenty of time. And that was sort of the message I, I actually gave that message to, not a commencement address, but to a a class I spoke to when I was like probably thirty-one or thirty-two. Uh, I, I've become a lot less insouciant about that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I really, and partly this is just about my own anxieties, about my own, uh, you know. Uh, spent time spent in the 20s is is I think um, taking life more seriously younger is something that I think doesn't necessarily go wrong you don't want to tell people you know life's serious it's all doom and gloom and all that but yeah um, I think you really do only have one shot at this and uh, I think taking that more seriously uh, and the, the, the decisions have consequences early um, matters I would also tell people to have kids uh, sooner than later um, I had, I had kids late in life. Um, as you can tell, if you know that I'm 51 and my kids are eight and five, yeah. uh, I would have same, liked, same with me. Yeah. I didn't yeah. have kids till I was 40. 
Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm 42 when Felix and then 45 when Eloise was born. And uh, I um, I would have liked a bigger family and uh, I would have liked uh, not just more kids, but kids kids earlier. Um, I, I, I thought kids were an obstacle to what I want to do with my life for a long time. So I always, I always thought I wanted kids eventually, but um, kids kids have only improved my life. Uh, and mm. uh, I wish I'd had, uh, had uh, more of them sooner would have been uh something i think uh, and i think more people should have more kids and more of them sooner hmm. it's it, it's and it's it's a theme that we, we may end up talking about right is is um uh the decline in infertility is a serious problem for our society but i think it's not just a problem for society from this point of view of uh pensions and who's going to pay for society all this it's it's a problem from the point of view of happiness um, and, and I think, you know, if, if, if there's a crisis of, 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 of happiness and a crisis of, of meaning and a crisis of, uh, of faith in modernity, I think it might be partly a problem is because there's a, a, a crisis of faith in the family. Um, Interesting. And I think, uh, yeah, let's come back to that. Yeah. What's been a recent epiphany for you? Is there something you've changed your mind about recently? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what have I changed my mind about? Well, uh, I mean, certainly, um, uh, and this is the theme of the book, right? Is that I, I've, I've very much changed my mind about the fundamental uh, rationality of our society and of humanity. Um, that is, uh, I, I have a PhD in philosophy, right? And and uh, one of the things that philosophy puts into you or embeds into you is that um, reason. That it, it, it's the Aristotelian view, right? That why why can we understand the world? because we are rational people and we live in a rational world, right? And our reason can map on to understand, take apart and recognize the patterns and the laws and so on. And regardless of whether you're in Aristotelian or what are you in philosophy, philosophy, there's a million different you know, ways of approaching it. But, but ultimately that basic optimistic take on the world is embedded into all philosophical worldviews, that the world is understandable. And because it's understandable, it's controllable and manipulable. Right. Uh, and, uh, I have changed my mind and, and, and that, that sort of view is in my, my previous book, the authenticity hoax, which is a, a criticism of certain ways of thinking about the world, but ends with sort of this rallying cry for progress and rationality and, 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 and so on. And I, I fundamentally changed my mind on that, uh, in that I've, I'm, I'm less convinced now that, that, that basic mapping holds that, um, we are rational people who live in a rational world. Um, I, I, I'm much f uh, more afraid now that um, we have no reason to believe that, that what we call reason is this kludged together group of, of dispositions and habits and, you know, modes of inference and so on that, you know, made a lot of sense for us when we were, you know, apes on the African savanna uh, and that uh, the world as it exists now and the world, the brains we were given, they don't, they don't mesh that well. And uh, it's why I've become much more pessimistic about the world in general. Is I think I think that 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 identity between rational humans and a rational world is something I, I don't believe in anymore. I used wow. To. Yeah. Okay, we're definitely coming back to that. Uh, last question for this segment. Um, we're going to talk a lot about your book, your books. Uh, but what book are you most likely to recommend to other people? Hmm. Um, whew. Uh, you know, there's this uh, fantastic book uh, by Ray Smolian, um, who uh, is an old school philosopher logician, 
Um, he died uh, probably four or five years ago. He's one of those guys who used to have like a, uh, a column in like uh, Scientific American or one of those old magazines used to read, right? That was like logic puzzles at the end, you know, the barber shaves yeah. all those who shaves all those kind of things, right? Um, and that's how I kind of knew it was only through that. Um, but he wrote a book, he was, he was also a magician, um, like, a, like a professional magician. Ma magician. And if you ever see a picture of me, he looks a bit like Gandalf, had like big white hair and a okay. long white beard. Uh, and he wrote a book um, called The Tao is Silent. And it's a book that basically tries to uh, reconcile uh, Western philosophy and Eastern mysticism, um, but also show where one starts and the other one takes over and where, where the limits of one push up against the limits of the other. Um, and it's, it's, it's full of like little aphorisms, short chapters, um, a long dialogue between a Taoist and, and uh, a philosopher and God. Um, and it touches on uh, meaning of life. And, and uh, it, it's just, and it's funny throughout, but, but, but also deep. Um, I used to give copies away to people. I would just say, just read this book, right? Um, and I remember giving it to a, uh, an undergrad uh, one year. Um, who, she was not the, the best undergrad I'd ever had. Um, she was actually not a great student. Um, she came to, at the end of the year to talk about, you know, her grade or something like that. And I had a copy on my desk and I gave it to her. And a year and a half later, she wrote me, she wrote me a, an email out of the blue and said, uh, I just want you to know that book changed my life. Uh, and uh, which really like, I mean, it's always gratifying to get those emails, but this is someone who I just had never given, you know, I barely knew her as a student as a class of probably 80 people. Uh, yeah. And it, it's a book that I think is probably the most, um, uh, it's a book that I'm probably most likely to recommend to people. Just read this book and it'll, it'll, it won't change your life, but it'll, it'll, it'll shape your, your brand and shape your life in ways that, mm. um, you might not have expected. Ray Smolian. Ray, yeah. Raymond Smolian, S-M-U-L-L-Y-A-N. And the book is called The Tao, T-A-O, is silent. The Tao is silent. Yeah, yeah. Tao is silent. Yeah, All right. This has been great, Andrew. We're going to take a short pause and we will continue digging deep with Andrew Potter. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you a little bit more about the presenting sponsor of Digging Deep, ZenBooks. ZenBooks is Canada's go-to cloud accounting firm. They are not your typical accounting firm. I know the founders, Colin and Eric. I've worked with them for several years. And here's why I think you should consider working with them too. First of all, they bring a fresh, unique, modern approach to what is a very old-fashioned industry. These guys were working remotely and in the cloud long before it became cool. ZenBooks also uses technology to your advantage. I think this is really important. They give you the tools and analysis you need to monitor your business in real time. That's so valuable right now when everything changes so quickly. Yes, they're a virtual accounting firm, but that doesn't mean they're offshore, and it doesn't mean they're inattentive. ZenBooks combines the efficiency and effectiveness of a cloud accounting service with all the benefits that you'd want from a trusted advisor, high-level advice, and strategic support. Now, here's what I think is going to happen if you work with ZenBooks. You'll probably start out taking advantage of their cutting-edge cloud accounting solutions, but in the long run, I think you'll stay with them because of their strategic guidance and problem-solving. Among their core values, they specifically list being candid and proactive. Isn't that exactly what you want from a trusted advisor? Look, even if you're already working with an accountant or a bookkeeper, or you have some accounting staff on your team, 
I think you should still talk to Zen Books and learn more about their tools and their expertise. Check out Zen Books at zenbooks.ca. That's zenbooks.ca. Digging Deep is all about helping you make better decisions, and so is Abacus Data. Most leaders struggle to connect with and engage their audiences. Why is that? It's because they aren't sure how they think and feel and how they will react. Abacus Data can give you the strategic insights you need to make better decisions and to make them confidently. Here's a good example. A major national union was recently negotiating a new agreement for its thousands of members. This had the potential to be a very difficult process. There were many competing interests. So they brought in Abacus Data to conduct thorough and detailed research of their members to learn exactly where they stood, what they were thinking, what they wanted. And as a result, they were able to secure a strong new deal that was accepted overwhelmingly in a national vote. Abacus Data helps all of its clients understand what's really happening in the minds of their employees, clients, and stakeholders. They help them avoid costly blind spots. And they're really good at what they do. In fact, Abacus Data was one of the most accurate pollsters in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Make the one decision that will improve all of your other decisions. Let Abacus Data help you move forward with confidence and clarity. Go to abacusdata.ca. That's abacusdata.ca. So, Andrew, we're going to talk about your book, and I, uh, I'm fascinated by your thesis that we are in decline and that uh, it's, it's not a very hopeful <laughs> message that you're sharing, but I'm fascinated by it. But before we do that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your career, and I'll, I'll share the perspective that, you know, so first of all, I'm a university dropout. Uh, you, you got a PhD. I've always been fascinated by people who stuck with university since I didn't. And nobody, you know, nobody, we, we always, I always ask the question, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? And nobody says, I want to be an academic when they're 10 or 12 years old. Nobody says, I want to spend more and more time. You know, I want to be in school till I'm 30. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious of how that ended up happening. And then the other part of it that I'm really fascinated by is how you ended up in journalism and liking it so much, because I remember I was a columnist at the Ottawa Citizen, yeah. a, a part-time columnist, and and then you were introduced to me as this guy who was arriving as an editor. And, and I looked at your background and I remember my first reaction being, why the hell does this guy want to work at a daily newspaper? Right. Right? You're, you're an academic, you've written books, you're doing all this interesting stuff. And yeah. you wanted to work at a daily newspaper. You wanted to work right. at the Ottawa citizen editing, you know, my 700 word business column, <laughs> like what was going on there? So I'm curious about how you yeah. ended up there. Well, the, the, the citizen saved me, so we can get back to that. So, so um, here's my career path. Quite, quite. Um, it, it, I'll try and nutshell it. But um, I graduated from high school. I went to Glebe High School in Ottawa, um, and wanted to go to law school. That was sort of my thing. I want to go to law school, right? Um, why? Because law school sounded the kind of thing that was like kind of intellectual, but also might make you some money, right? It was sort of like ooh, law. Um, and then I went to McGill and studied political science. And uh, spent my first semester uh, not doing very well because I was kind of playing soccer and, and chasing a girl and doing all the things that I should have been 
doing everything that I should not have been doing and not paying attention to my studies and realized that I wasn't going to get into honors political science because my grades were so bad. I had to have a 3.5 or something like that. But, but I was good enough to get into honors philosophy. And uh, some of the stuff I liked in poli sci was the political theory. So I switched into philosophy because it was kind of like doing the same kind of stuff. And, uh, but I could get into the honors program with my terrible grades. And uh, I, I, I just kind of liked it. I liked, I liked the idea of playing with ideas. It sounded, it seemed kind of cool, right? Like talking about Nietzsche and, you know, you could, and, and it's one of those things where you're like 20 and your like ideas are kind of impinging over the first time. And you sort of think, oh, I can, you know, impress people, but also impress myself and my friends. And, and so I just kind of fell in love with philosophy. Um, and then when I graduated, I literally had no plan for what to do. Like literally like two months before school, before school ended, my mom was like, so what are you going to do in, in May? Right. And it, it had not, I had not even, I had not given two seconds of thought to what I was going to do. Like literally I hadn't written the LSATs. I hadn't done anything. And so I kind of like was futzing around thinking, well, maybe I'll write the LSAT and take a year off and do that. And then I thought about applying to journalism school, but that was kind of uh, half, half baked. My sister at the time was doing a PhD in, in, in uh, sociology at the University of Toronto. And she said, well, you know, UFC has these like one year MAs uh, that have uh, a late application deadline, like late June. So I was like, oh, I could do that, right? <laughs> and so I, I like, I scrounged together an application really quickly. Uh, this is in, I was working at a fish market in Montreal and I got together an application to do a one year MA and, and got in. Uh, and so quit my fish market job, moved to Toronto and started doing the MA. And the MA program offered a very easy, if you did well in the MA, it was sort of expected you would just keep doing the PhD. Right. And, and this is where my, my natural inability to plan combined with my uh, high risk aversion sort of kicked in, which is that it offered a, a, you know, doing a PhD sort of just set out the next four years of my life for me. Yeah. Um, you know, just like, okay, I don't have to make any decisions. I'm doing this, right? Even though I didn't really, I, by the time I'd stopped loving philosophy, I really didn't like it that much. Um, I found it hard and I found it kind of lonely, um, but it was something to do. So I started doing it. And, uh, but to sort of keep myself, but one of the things that, I, and I should have realized this at the time is, is I wasn't doing great in the PhD. I was doing okay, but I wasn't doing great. And the reason I wasn't doing great were two reasons. Um, it was hard and I'd sort of pushed up against the limits of my intellect. Uh, and there were kids there who were just way smarter than I was at this kind of philosophy, like just way smarter. Um, but also I, I didn't like spending that much time alone. Um, and to do philosophy, academia in general, but also philosophy in particular, you have to be, be willing and able to spend a lot of time alone. And I didn't recognize it for what it was at the time, which was just simply a temperamental thing I should just sort of accept. I, I saw it as a failing. Uh, and to manage that, I started spending a lot of time hanging around the student newspaper, the varsity. I was like the grad student guy hanging out, right? Like a lot right. of undergrads all doing that, right? Then they don't care. They're just blowing away their undergrads, right? But I was in grad school and started spending a lot of time hanging out there. And my thesis supervisor got mad at me. He's like, why are you hanging around that student newspaper all the time? But along the way, I met a guy named Mark Kingwell, um, who uh, you may know, uh, he was a really big name. Yeah. I mean, he's still a big name, but uh, in he's, the late He's been 90s, a guest on this podcast. Right. So Mark yeah. is... Um, He's another one of the mentors I had. He was a professor of mine at, 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 uh, at U of T. I took a couple of courses with him and I really liked him. I liked, and I liked what he was doing because he was writing for a public audience. Right. And I thought, here's something that I can kind of square my philosophy with what Mark, Mark was doing. I thought, That's, I could do that, right? Because I was already writing for the student newspaper. 
and Mark got me writing for like, you know, magazines, this magazine in Toronto. And he got me into the Toronto star writing like little op beds and stuff. And that's how I spent a lot of time uh, in grad school was just sort of um, under Mark's not tutelage, but Mark's, you know, encouragement and, and help. He would, he would get me writing. And uh, so then when I graduated uh, with my PhD, I had, I had zero academic publications, but a lot of journalism publications. And around the same time, I'd hit it off with Joe Heath. And Joe was sort of reading what I was writing. He's like, oh, you can write. He's like, I want to write this book, but I don't want to write a whole book. Let's write a book together. So Joe and I wrote this book called The Rebel Cell on uh, consumerism counterculture. It ended up doing super well by the standards of these things. Didn't make me rich, but it, it, it you know, got published in like 20 different countries and I think 18 different languages and so on. It's, it, it, it That's was, pretty it was cool. A, yeah, it was a big yeah. success. And that got me a column um, in McLean's magazine. Uh, and uh, so I kind of spent my 30s um, from the time I graduated in 2000 until about 2005, just doing journalism and futzing around. I kind of was working. I, I got a job at Trent University teaching philosophy, but it wasn't a tenure track job. It was a contract. I was really struggling. Like I was making no money, and, but doing a lot of writing. And in 2006, I was in Toronto just working on some contracts and some stuff. And I'd been writing for The Citizen and Scott Anderson, who was the editor of The Auto Citizen at the time, um, sent me a note and said, I'm going to be in Toronto. You want to get, get a drink and get dinner? He said, I'd like to sort of meet my freelancers and so on. And uh, over drinks one night, he offered me a job uh, out of the blue, like basically sight unseen. Um, and said, do you want to come be the news editor? And I had nothing else going on. So I said, sure. And cool. uh, so I, that's, that's how I ended up at The Citizen. Yeah. At 37. The day, the day I walked into the citizen on my first day on the job was the first time I'd ever been in a newsroom in my entire life. <laughs> and you later ended up editor in chief of the citizen, of course. And- <laughs> editor in chief, yeah. is me, you know, yeah. stick around long enough. Yeah. So, and, and, and then, so that's, that's that. I mean, that's, that's how I ended up in journalism. That's, cool. that's the long, long version of it. Yeah. Well, I, I like, you know, as a journalist, I, I like seeing people who, you know, come to journalism from, all kinds of different places rather than everybody coming through the journalism school track. So I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. So, so let's turn to your latest book and, and, you know, it's funny because I've been maintaining for a while that there's never been a better time to be alive that, you know, that for all that we pined for some time in the past that was, was, this, the glory days or whatever that, you know, there's this nostalgia, there's this sort of sepia toned aura about things sometimes that it's inarguable that this is the best time to be alive. And you know, life isn't perfect and there's still lots and lots of problems to fix, but overall this is the best time ever to be alive. Um, But you're arguing with this book that every year is worse than the last one and is the worst (laughs) year ever. So How did you end up there? Yeah. So, so um, I used to, I used to uh, agree entirely with you. In fact, I think, you know, I've talked about this before and, and uh, I, I, you know, there was you and me and um, Dan Gardner at the citizen, all of us, he's sort of like, you know, rational optimist types, right. Who right. Uh, <laughs> poo poo the declinists and the woe was me. And, and um, I, I, I'm perfectly uh, open to this idea that there's a nostalgia in my book, despite the fact that my book has a lot of, um, criticism of nostalgia that maybe there's a, an underlying nostalgia for the past or that I'm that I'm not recognizing so so let me try and explain why I think this is the case that w- what's going on because um you know I've read Steven Pinker's book uh the right. the one what's it called the um the rational uh, the rational optimist no what's his book called the one I'll look it up 
but he has yeah. a, he has a book that basically it says what I just said and yeah, you know, much more it's getting back. Yeah. yeah much more eloquently and and with a lot more research and so on but uh, yeah. but yeah that that uh, you know you look at the 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 level of violence in the world you look at human rights you look at life expectancy uh you know uh yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, so, en- yeah. enlightenment now Enlightenment now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Look, I should remember that. I, I, yeah. I reviewed it for the LRC and reviewed it very positively, even at a time when it was getting very negative reviews. So so what, what am I actually arguing, right? Um, when I say that every year is getting worse than the last, it's, it's, the, the thesis is essentially this, that civilization advances through uh, the resolution of increasingly large-scale and complex collective action problems, right? That, that um, bar- barbarism is essentially, um, you know, you're in, you're in, you're everything gets resolved through either um, violence, top-down authoritarianism, or uh, tribal relationships, right? And that civilization evolves when um, you you take a more we we end up with a more a more bureaucratic, uh, liberal not liberal. Um, uh, neutral approach of things, right? Where where we have we have systems set up that people can embed themselves in, right? That resolve the collective action problems that sort of keep us keep us in in barbarism. And there was there was there was no reason, I think, until recently, to think that that we couldn't just keep doing this. That this we could just keep scaling this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you go from the village, the town, to the city, to the to the federation, to you know, the federation of planets, right? And why why can't we keep scaling all of these institutions sure. that that was all these collective action problems? And I think what I sort of did was start, I just started reading a bunch of stuff that seemed to all point in the same direction from different ways. That um, the forces that are at work are making it harder and harder to do that. That that is. Um, it's not just that we uh, um, that the problems are harder. It's that our ability to manage those problems is getting worse because of the forces that are at work. And what are those forces that are at work? Um, there, there's, there's basically three, maybe four, depending on how you want to count them, right? One of which is that um, the, the economic slash technological stagnation that we've sort of been in for the last 30 or 40 years, depending on how you, uh, how you count and what, what you count, um, has had a number of effects, um, but one of the main effects of that is it's exacerbated uh, our um, attitudes towards our institutions. Um, it sort of made, made them, it, it's, it's harmed our attitudes towards our institutions. That is, um, when, when, when you think the world's gonna, when you think your life's gonna get better every year, right? You'll be a little richer, things will be a little better, the pie will be bigger, right? You, um, it, it doesn't just make you richer and give you more stuff, it, it makes you a better person. Um, yeah. That is, you become more open-minded towards diversity, uh, less fearful of, of others, uh, and, and uh, less risk-averse, right? More right. open to taking risks. And so you on, put right? your because, faith in the system, right? In the system, right? You, what, yeah. Yeah. So what's the worst going to happen, right? But when you get extended periods of, uh, of stagnation punctuated by a genuine crisis, right? 911, the, 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 uh, the, the credit crisis of 2008, 2009, now the pandemic, right? These things that sort of happen every 10 years. Um, it, it reduces your faith in the system. You can see that, right? Declining faith in, in, uh, in, in just the system in general. Um, that combined with um, a number of other forces uh, is really, um, I think, the, the main thing. The main one of those being 
uh, I, I hate to say it because there's a lot of things I love about it, but um, the effects of the internet and social media in particular, uh, I think we're, we're, I used to be very sort of well on balance, you know, what's the worst could happen, right? Uh, you know, people have been criticizing new media since Plato criticized writing, right? Plato thought writing would make yeah. people, you know, a bit crazy, right? And then people thought the radio and people thought television and all that. Um, and so I'm just another guy saying technology is going to ruin the world, right? Um, but I, I think one thing it does um, is that uh, it, there, there's this distinction you, you probably talked about on the podcast between what, what um, the, the, they call system one versus system two thinking, right? System, system one is that sort of gut, uh, rapid fire, um, in, instinctive judgments that you make without really thinking about it, right? It's, this, it's the, the focus of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. Right? right, this idea that without even thinking, right, you, your body just sort of makes decisions, right? Versus system two, which is transparent and rational and explicit and algorithmic and so on, right? And that what we call reason, right, enlightenment reason, is that system two kind of thinking, the slow, the stuff you do when you're doing like long division or when you're, you know, trying to like, you know, find a parking spot with the radio blaring, right? You're kind of yeah. kind of do that, right? Or finish a Rubik's cube, what have you, right? Um, and, and, and what's 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 undeniable, I think, is that uh, the internet has um, it's basically a machine for triggering our system one impulses. It's a, it's it, it, and uh, our our system one um, uh, habits of mind, while making it much harder for us to behave rationally. And uh, I think so. So I, I, and I, and I think that that basic logic of um, how we figured out how to basically hack our brains. We've 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 figured out how to hack our monkey brain uh, or our our ape brain. Um, and it's not just the internet, right? It's everything. It's the way it's the way Netflix feeds you uh, feeds you things. It's the way Amazon feeds you ideas. Yeah. It's the way it's the way IKEA is laid out. It's the way everything is sort of laid out in a way to sort of make it harder to think straight. And you don't want to blame capitalism, but you know there's a great deal of profit to be made by exploiting people's inability to, to be properly rational, right? And uh, so all of which means that um, we live in a world where the system is already under stress is because of the stagnation and the decline of faith in democracy. And we find it increasingly hard to be rational. And I think you put those things together and uh, the, 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 the conditions for the successful resolution of collective action problems becomes much more difficult. And so, right. so what I'm predicting Find, with finding the, book, the ability to bring people together to solve big problems. Yeah, politics, politics becomes yeah. basically one big casino uh, and where everyone's sort of running around chasing flashing lights. And so, so when I say that things are getting it worse, it's just, I think what, I'm, what I mean by that is that a, an increasing number of collective action problems will go unresolved and the serious ones will only sort of build up uh, and uh, that life will get harder, coarser, and more, um, just, just more difficult uh, to navigate. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the argument of the book in a, uh, in a, in a long, in a very big nutshell. <laughs> so what I find interesting about that is, you know, it, it's reasonable to assume that at some point, who knows when, humanity will come to an end in some form or another, could be a natural disaster, could be self-destruction, all kinds of different things could happen. But um, one of the things I've thought about recently is, is how there is a scenario in which uh, we could actually see the end of civilization approaching. We could be the authors of, of our own misfortune, that we, we created the conditions that lead to the end of civilization, that we could know that we're doing it and still not be able to stop it from happening. 
and I see what's going on with the sort of the attention, um, you know, the, 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 all of the focus on what we do with social media and how, how computers are grabbing our attention. And when you layer on artificial intelligence onto that, it's only going to supercharge it. That that being one of that being a potential scenario uh, where we actually initiated the sequence of events that led to our own demise, we're observing it happening as it happens, but we can't reverse it. Yeah, I I, I think I think that's um, that's the uh, that's the scenario. I think I I, I fear we're in. Precisely. Right. I mean, I mean, it's the point where y- you can see people sort of narrating in real time on Twitter, like people call Twitter this hell site, right? That's what they call it, right? Um, like no one's on Twitter kind of going, oh, isn't this great? Oblivious to what what's happening, right? They're like, boy, logging into this hell site is great, right? Yeah. Um, it's and- like we're all we're all paddling a ship towards a waterfall and going, and, well, and, and look, and check it out. And isn't this yeah. hilarious that we're all wow. sort of aiming towards the waterfall, but nobody can turn the ship around? But let's keep paddling. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right, and uh, I, I, I fear that is a scenario where 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 we're actively narrating our own uh, decline, and we're even aware of the forces, but really can't do anything about it, um, and, yeah. and and can't figure out a way of doing anything about it. Um, you, you know, one of and it, and it sort of puts the lie, I think, to this this idea that you know a lot of people were pushing for years, which is just like we need to just wake up, right? Um, like I remember David Suzuki, right? People need to like get aware of climate change, right? People need and awareness is like, you know, everyone knows what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, but we, we finally don't understand, I think, uh, what's happening. And I, I think I think the Afghanistan, I don't know if you want to talk about the Afghanistan situation, but the Afghanistan situation is kind of in a lot of ways a, um, a potted version of the story that is carefully starting in about 2010 when I, I made a couple of trips over there after I left the citizen I went a couple of times and sort of got interested in in it partly because I kind of liked the I always I, I feel I always should have joined the army um oh wow if you want to talk about like digging deep right I really think I should have joined the army um but um I got interested in it and I've become more interested in sort of seeing how it's just uh not not worked out in a way that anyone would have hoped and I've taught a couple of courses on it now, and I've come to the conclusion that, you know, when people say, well, what should we have done in Afghanistan? What should Biden have done? Biden couldn't have done anything, right? We couldn't have done anything because the mistakes were made uh, in 2002, 2003. And there's a huge um, path dependency there where once you're on a certain path, it's very, very difficult to fix. Yeah. Um, and uh, if not impossible, right? And, um, I, I that, and so so I think that that might be civilization where we're at. Where a certain path dependency has kicked in, that we just aren't in a position anymore to do much about. And that's that's sort of one sort of thing. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is is essentially try and give a a, a nonfiction explanation of of a thesis that the author William Gibson has, which is called the jackpot, uh, which is this un sort of un, unexplained happening that sort of went from made civilization collapse. And in interviews, William Gibson has said, look, the jackpot is just, uh, it's a, he says it's a civilizational train wreck that's hundreds of years in the making, right? He said, this isn't, it's not like the moon suddenly exploding, right? Or it's not aliens right. arriving, right? It's not, it's not a comet striking. It's the unfolding of modernity, uh, the, like the logic of modernity kind of working itself out in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's not much you can do about that. Right. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean doesn't mean everyone's going to die. It doesn't mean, 
you know, the oceans are going to like come flooding in. It's, it's not, this isn't, this isn't Hollywood, but it does mean, uh, I think that maybe we're on a path that we can't really do much about. Yeah. And to go back to something you said a minute ago, I, I, I have come to think that awareness is nothing, right? That, that, you know, if we, we always talk about, oh, we, we just have to educate people or we just have to share the information with them or all of that. And it, it, it means nothing. If, if yeah. awareness was the key, there'd be no obesity. Nobody would be smoking or taking opioid drugs or, or making bad choices in their lives or whatever. Like awareness is useless in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, I, I agree entirely with that. I think one of the, um, this, and this goes back to the book I co-wrote with Joe Heath on, on the, on, on, uh, called The Rebel Cell, which was about um, our critique of what, what they called culture jamming, right? Which is that big sort of early 2000s movement that um, you, could, you could change society by, um, you know, uh, defacing um, billboards or, you know, coming up with parody ads of Nike running shoes and so on, right? That that would cause people to change their, their views on society. Um, it doesn't work that way. And, and one of the things that we sort of lament at the end of the book, but don't do much about, but which I've always tried to wanted to come back to in, in anything I've thought about and written is that, like you said, awareness is nothing. Institutions are everything, right? That, that, that institutions and, and uh, you know, the, the big thing that, that made me appreciate institutions as essentially like algorithms, right? That you can plug people into that do things on their own. Uh, I never really appreciated them until I got to the citizen. Um, because the citizen, as you know, right, a newspaper is a machine for producing a newspaper and nobody there knows how to make a newspaper, right? right. Like there's no right. one yeah. person who knows yeah. how to make the newspaper, right? Uh, and there were days when there were hardly, there was hardly anyone around. Uh, there were days when, you know, on weekends, whatever, but the paper got out every day, yeah. right? And like every day. Yeah. And days when and you, you, like, you think like, about a city, right? Like what it takes to right. run it. Like if you, if you and I said, we're going to launch a city tomorrow, we've got this, this area of land and we're going to build a city. How would you even do that? And right. we, you know, and yet a city like, and even these massive cities, you know, that have their issues and whatever, but they still are largely functional. People get yeah. where they need to go and, and things happen. It's in, it's incomprehensible and yet it works. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, why, why does the power come on every morning? Right? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. Right? Like, uh, and, and so I think we, we don't, under, we, I think we don't appreciate enough, um, just the, the infrastructure and institutions of, our, of uh, our, our, our mental infrastructure, our cognitive infrastructure, uh, the, the term that Joe Heath uses, which I really like, uh, is what he calls um, the scaffolding around us, right? The, the, the intellectual scaffolding that is around us, we don't realize we, we think that reason is something we carry around in our heads, right? And it's not. Reason is something that's embedded all around us, right? Why am I taking notes here as you and I are talking, right? Because I can't think in my head. I need to think on a piece of paper as we sort of walk around with that, right? And uh, I, I think one of the things we've done is we've, 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 uh, we've, we've torn down that scaffolding or made it, uh, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, we've the, 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 the rational scaffolding that, that sort of sustained us for a very long time has either uh, is in disrepair or is in, in danger of collapsing entirely. And uh, I think because we don't, we don't see it for what it is, we're like fish who don't know that they swim in water, right? We, we yeah. never really understood the scaffolding that's around us and uh, we don't see what's happening to it because we think, oh, we just need to sort of, um, you know, lecture people about climate change and they'll change their views, right? It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So, so since you're a, a philosopher, and, and maybe this 
has more to do with your other book about authenticity. Um, you know, we, we sort of invest ourselves in, in building a better world and, and in attaching meaning to our lives and what we're doing and, and searching for meaning and, and, um, and, you know, how, how do you look at that versus another way of looking at it, which is just we're an advanced form of animal. Uh, and the one thing that separates us from every other form of animal is we know we're going to die. And therefore, we, we, we need to kind of cope with that by creating this false sense of meaning in our lives. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... I'll try and reframe it in terms that I can sort of speak in and we'll see, we'll see where, where we go with that. So, so one of the themes that um, when I was a philosopher that you would hear about is the, uh, and this is, this is sort of like Nietzsche's critique of liberalism, right? That liberalism is a hollow, uh, a hollow uh, ideology, right? That at its core, there's nothing there, right? That, that it tells, it gives you the freedom to do whatever you want, but doesn't tell you what's worth doing. Right. That's the sort of idea of liberal individualism. And when I was a younger man and, you know, I wanted to like party and I wanted to listen to rock music and do whatever. I was like, ah, meaning who needs meaning? Right. We got like, who needs meeting when you got like, when you're having a good time, when you're having yeah. a good time, right. <laughs> Have a good time all the time. Right? That's my yeah. philosophy. Right. It's like spinal tap. <laughs> um, and, and then you get a bit older and, you know, and a lot of this is just getting older. Right. Uh, and you have kids, you start to think about stuff. And, um, I think one of the more interesting moments where we're at right now is that, um, that crisis, uh, is manifesting itself in ways that people don't see as they don't understand what the crisis amounts to. So I'll give three examples. Um, and, and this is all very male. Uh, and so you can make it out what you like. Um, but there's three writers who I've sort of read, and I think in one way, they're all kind of saying the same thing. There, there's um, Carl Nosgaard, uh, who's written um, a five or six or seven volume series now called My Struggle, which is, you know, <laughs> not, not what you want to call a book, but, uh, and <laughs> it's essentially about him dealing with um, being a, uh, a semi-failed novelist uh, and a stay-at-home dad, right? And so there's like 200 pages of, the, the first 200 pages of his second book are basically him about being a schlubbish uh, stay-at-home dad, right? He's, wow. and he's, uh, and it's about, it's about the compromises of domesticity and fatherhood, but also about how great it is, but also how, you know, he's like, there's this long, long, like 50 pages where he's at like a kid's birthday party, right? And he's standing there <laughs> having a drink and he just wants to shoot himself, right? Um, so there's that. There's um, there's another writer, a French writer named Michel Welbeck, who uh, you might have uh, read. He wrote, um, he got famous about 15 years ago for writing a book called uh, The Elementary Particles. Oh, yeah. Which was about, or at, called Atomized. Uh, and then uh, more recently, he wrote a book called uh, Submission, which is about uh, a France. that it, it, The reviews kind of said it was about France getting taken over by Islam, but it's not. It's about f the French society voluntarily submitting to an Islamic theocracy. Um, wow. And, uh, and the reason is, is because uh, the French basically saw the hollowness at the heart of liberalism, right? And they, 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 they end up finding meaning in, in Islam, right? Um, and then there's, uh, there's Jordan Peterson, who is a very controversial figure, as, as, as everyone here listening knows. 
Um, and I, I've read his book. I, I've ever seen his pod. I've never seen his podcasts um, or pay much attention. But I, I did read his first book, Twelve Rules for Life, uh, which kind of goes on a bit. Um, but there's some stuff in there that's quite useful. So, so what are Nosgard, Welbeck, and Pearson doing? They're they're all struggling in one way or another with the um, uh, that, that basic fact that, that liberalism doesn't tell you what's worth doing, right? Yeah. And uh, with Nosgard, he ends up sort of trying to find it in uh, parenthood. Uh, and domesticity. Welbeck ends up finding it in sex in his earlier books. It's sex becomes sort of this thing, right? That um, provides sort of the ultimate meaning. And then later it's, it's Islam. Uh, and with Jordan Peterson, he's trying to sort of narrate um, basically turning uh, your own self into a, a holy object that you should um, respect and uh, treat, treat better, right? With, with varying degrees of success. But I, but I think there's a reason why this is sort of the, uh, of the moment right now. And I think it's because, uh, you know, um, it's like um, Francis Fukuyama said about the end of history. The end of history is not gonna be a fun thing, right? It'll be a time where you sort of stare into the abyss and think, oh, is that all there is, right? Uh, iPads and, and Netflix and, uh, you know, is this, is this, is this it, right? Um, and so, uh, so, to, so to go back to your question, right? Are we just these apes? I think we're these apes who uh, are, are struggling to find meaning in the world, and and we figured everything else. We figured out everything out except what's worth doing. And uh, I think that's that's sort of at the core of the current moment, which is um, just that that basic problem. Yeah. So. I was going to ask you kind of like, what's the solution for us as individuals? What's the solution for us, you know, as a society, is it to figure out what we should be doing? Like, is that, is that ultimately at the heart of this, that, that for us as individuals and for us collectively, we should, we should be trying to solve that problem and just figure out what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think for, for, for me, it operates at, at, at least two levels, one of which is what's, what, what's society about and what's, what's going on. And the other is uh, what should I be doing in my own life? And I think, um, I, I said earlier, you know, I, I probably should join the military um, instead of going into philosophy. And, and I mean that partly because I came from a military family. My dad was in, my dad was in the Air Force and, uh, and uh, his father fought in, in the Second World War and my uncle was, was a colonel in the army and so on. Uh, but there was never any pressure to join the military, uh, far from it. In fact, there was probably negative pressure on that front. Um, but what the military uh, would have offered me, um, which I found ultimately in journalism, right, was uh, something that fit my own dispositions, right? That is uh, what I loved about journalism. Uh, and it's funny you asked, like, why would I want to come there? Well, I, I, when I said that the citizen saved me, it saved me because it made me realize that there are just some things I was actually good at, some things I wasn't. I was not good at philosophy. I was not good at spending months on end writing things that would be published two years later, right? What I ended up being pretty uh, not, not bad at was um, helping put out a daily newspaper. I, I loved the pace of it. I loved the short-term aspect of it. I loved, there was everything about it that sort of fit my own dispositions. Um, not, 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 not everything. I mean, there were some aspects of that I couldn't believe. I remember one of the very first things I ever did at the Citizen early on was I had sent a reporter named Kate Jamet out to do something, and she was out in uh, North Gore or something, covering something. And then some uh, judge dropped a decision for a case that she'd apparently been covering before I'd sort of arrived. And the judge dropped the decision, and I remember one of the editors came over and said, get Kate back here. And I was like, well, but I sent her to North Gore. And he said, get her back here. 
And so I, and I figured there's just no way she's coming back, right? She's got a plan for her day. She's going to do it. I called Kate up. I said, hey, Kate, this judgment just dropped. And she goes, oh, my God. She slammed on the phone and was back in within 40 minutes. And I thought, wow, journalists are a different kind of person right like report like that you can like turn your brain on a dime like that would make me crazy i, I like know right. what i'm doing like like i have i have actual plans for the day and if you try and bug those plans like you know like i don't plan very well long term but i also i can't turn on a dime like that right <laughs> and so so it's a long way of saying like that i think um the it's, it's there are some people who just know from the moment they kind of wake up in the day in their lives what will make them happy and what they need to do to sort of like to get that fit between themselves and the world. Uh, I was not one of those people. Um, and I think that kind of self-awareness is something we don't teach people, I think. And we don't, we don't right. train them and we don't educate them on this idea that there are just some things that you will be better at, but also will make you happier and less anxious than other things. And I, I think no one ever sat me down and said, you know, you'll actually be happier doing this than in philosophy. Hmm. Um, no, no one ever sat me down and said, you know, that, that science class you're taking, you're just not doing well in it because you don't do science. Well, you know, you know, you know, we tend to sort of push people into things that, um, I, I, I'm struggling here to sort of frame what I'm trying to say, but I, I think some kind well, one, of one thing that pops to mind, as you say that is we, we tend to spend more time working on our weaknesses than on our strengths, right? We yes. Can, you know, so we, right. we spend all this time trying to improve in the areas that we're not good at instead of doubling down on the areas we're good yeah. at. See, okay, so that's that's you 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 you. That's why you're hosting this podcast, right? That's exactly right. Like, I remember when I was a kid, um, I my my parents and if they're listening to this, they'll they'll appreciate this, right? I took recorder lessons for like three or four years, right? I have zero musical talent um, <laughs> and zero interest in the recorder, but my parents had this idea that you should be like well-rounded, right? Yeah. And a well-rounded kid should like have a musical education and so on, right? When what I really wanted to do was like, I want to take karate lessons, right? My mom was like, you're not taking karate lessons, right? You're playing recorder. And uh, I, you know, I took up like martial arts like five years ago because <laughs> someone always wanted to do from the time when I was like 10 years old. But yeah, I think that's exactly right is sometimes it's just worth looking at what kids are doing with their, with their, where their brains put them naturally. And if it's a good space, don't, don't necessarily push them out of it. Right. Yeah. You know, if, if they're doing drugs and running with the wrong crowd, maybe. Right. But if, if they're happy, it's like, it's like my son has been spending the last three weeks waking up every morning and, and, and uh, playing the Rubik's cube for half an hour. Cause the kid at camp got into the Rubik's cube. And, you know, my wife was like, you know, should we, should we get him off that? It's like, why? Right. You know, yeah. why he loves it. Leave him alone. All right. Well, you know what? There's so many more angles that we could explore from this, but um, uh, we're running out of time. So let me just ask you, is this, is this, does this all add up to a lot of pessimism or is there still room for hope and optimism in all of this? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of room. I mean, this is one of those things where um, uh, unlike my previous writings where I've been sort of anxious that someone would come out and like, give the definitive rebuttal and show that I'm actually a fraud or whatever, right? I'd be more than happy for someone to come out and say, you know, Potter just got it completely wrong, right? Uh, yeah. More yeah. than happy. Please, right? please, yeah, please tell us. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I mean that partly for like 
uh, civilizational reasons, but also for intellectual reasons, right? I don't mind being wrong on this, right? If someone say you're, you're downplaying this, and I, I know there's, there's, there's flaws in the book and places where I would dig in in the argument. And so it's entirely possible I'm sort of overstating some things. Uh, I mean, it's pessimism, frankly, born of the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and I kind of end the book by saying any number of these things could happen, right? We could figure out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, you know, we could figure out cold fusion. We could, you know, there's lots of things that could go that could just transform our society. We could, we could step up that, that ladder, right? Uh, higher up that ladder. Um, but there's also a broader sense of which, you know, decline is not the apocalypse. Uh, and it's not even necessarily a tragedy, right? It's just decline. Um, you know, our uh, people were happy hundreds of years ago. Um, mm. And they will be happy hundreds of years from now. Uh, um, I, I think you're not wrong. I think when you said that, you know, there's a lot about the present life that makes it the best time to live. We have antibiotics, we have vaccines, we made a vaccine in eight days or something like that. Like that was the crazy time they, they did it, right? I mean, there, there is, it is the age of miracle and wonder, right? Um, but um, uh, are we happier than we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago? I don't know. Maybe not. Mm. Probably um, not. Yeah. Probably not. And uh, so, so there's that, that sense in which people will have kids, there will be art, there will be, there will be um, excitement, there will be sports, there will be everything, right? Um, it's just decline. It's not, it's not the end. It's just decline. It's just <laughs> decline. <laughs> Andrew, this has, old, been, you know? this has been fascinating and lots and lots of fun. I really appreciate you joining us today. Good luck with the book uh, and thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. It's been lots of fun. Take care of yourself. That's author and professor Andrew Potter. Now, we got into some pretty heavy stuff about the future of civilization, but I also thought it was fascinating to hear Andrew's perspective about creating well-rounded kids, about teaching young people to be self-aware and to keep their commitments, and why decline isn't necessarily a bad thing. So a big thank you once again to Andrew Potter for joining us for this really fun and thought-provoking discussion on Digging Deep. If you enjoyed this episode, please review it and share it with others. That will help us produce more great episodes. And if you want to keep digging deep into topics and lessons like this, if you want to see the show notes, if you want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, or if you want to read my blog where I post every single day of the year, you can do all of that at letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. And get ready for more great stories and powerful lessons on the next edition of Digging Deep. Thank you for listening. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.